Ho, 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 scary Christmas. Uh, hello, everyone, and happy solstice. Uh, we're recording this yes. on the longest and therefore spookiest night of the year. Maybe second to Halloween. You're so right. I don't know. You're so right. I know. Oh. oh. Halloween should be oh. on the winter solstice. On winter solstice. We got to get these two together. Parent oh. trap. <laughs> yeah. Hey, that's a great, or like two Halloween, you know, so we could have it twice a year. Yeah. Ooh, we get those they two can. together. Maybe they have yeah. a kid, you know what I mean? Yeah. Like a little one. And then that could be in the summer. So then it's like, you know, mom, dad, baby, or mm. parents and baby, who cares, you know, it's like, mm, cool. Yeah. We're on this one. But yeah, happy winter solstice. I feel like I haven't celebrated it enough today somehow, you know? Sure. Yeah, I kind of forgot. I mean, I I was like, oh, isn't it the 21st or 22nd? And then I didn't look it up until like 3 p.m. So I've only really been celebrating for a few hours. When the whole day was gone, all the sunlight was gone. Yeah, basically. (laughs) Basically, yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I went to the eye doctor and they dilated my eyes so hard that it, you know, it's like any light was painful. So well, that's was great really, for you. Really happy for the dark. Best day for work. it to happen. Yeah. That's right. You know, yeah. You probably have night vision now, right? Because your eyes yeah. are just permanently propped yeah. open. <laughs> well, I mean, I did before, but it's like. Fading. Even, no, I'm saying like my night vision has been even more um, amplified. Oh, oh, oh. Fantastic. Mm-hmm. Fantastic. Yeah. It's like a superpower now. So it's, you know, cool. Yeah. Well, anyway. Ghoul Talk yes. was, uh, you know, dead to begin with. There's no doubt mm. whatever about that. Mm. Okay. That was, Ghoul a, Talk was an still- allusion to, with an A, to uh, a famous <laughs> Christmas ghost story. Oh. Uh, that you may have heard of called One Christmas Carol. <laughs> uh, cri- Ever okay. heard of it? A Christmas Carol? Oh, that's the one. Oh, okay. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> now, you know what? I confession time. We could just Ooh, get, you know, really like juicy. Yeah. I've never read A Christmas Carol. Really? Yes, I've, you know, just seen, seen the it. adaptations. I've seen the adaptations no and actually I don't know if I have ever told you this. This is exclusive, but I okay. uh, yeah. Sit down. Sit down. <laughs> I used to work at the Ohio Historical Society in college. Mm-hmm. and The birthplace um, of Charles Dickens. Yeah. Ohio. You, got, yeah. Mm-hmm. you got that right. You got that right. <laughs> he was actually born at the Ohio Historical Society. Wow. Like in the office where I worked. It was, <sighs> yeah, it was really crazy. Amazing. Um, and he lived there his whole life. Like that's where he wrote A Christmas Carol actually mm-hmm. too. He mm-hmm. wasn't like allowed to leave. And anyway. Oh, for um, sure. Yeah. It was kind of sad, but also good for humanity. But anyway, they did the... Uh, they had like a little um, circa 1865 village thing and like on the museum grounds. Like so that they you had could like, walk through or just like a little model? Yeah. 
Ooh. And no, no, it was like a like a Harry a Potter world situation model. Yeah, exactly. So they, you know, they had like different houses. Like there was like a German immigrant's house and a, a little chapel, and it was pretty tight. And it was really cool when you were kids because it would be cool groups would come and all that kind of shit. Yeah, they but, do one in uh, Northern California, I think. That it's actually like the Charles Dickens Christmas, like Victorian. Oh. And it's like well, some convention center just gets built out like a oh, damn. Victorian neighborhood and you walk along the mm. alleys and people are in period costume. And that is so weird. I know. I know. <laughs> yeah. No, here, this Ohio village is like that every day. Like, oh, it's just, okay. it's not, it's not based on Dickens or anything. It's basically supposed to look like what an actual Ohio village would have looked like. But around mm. Christmas, mm. around the holidays, they do this like puppet show of a christmas carol and i was a part of that when i when i worked there i didn't get to operate the puppet oh no i was like i got to hold up like a ghost with um (laughs) with like (laughs) that's appropriate like a gossamer or something like i had to run down the aisle with it It they really set you uh on the Mm -hmm. path to where you are today that's right it was really where i got my start yeah your first and it was uh, like foot into the door of showbiz Got that right. Mm. <laughs> Got to start somewhere. Amazing. You know? The family that operated the puppets were like, you know, exactly the way you might think they would be. <laughs> I don't it's know what you mean. Way. I really have a dear, weird. dear friend with a wonderful <laughs> puppet, and uh, I oh. would not want to offend her. Well, no, no, I don't. I'm no hate. No, taking it back now. Not at all. No, no. I'm saying people that would volunteer like 20 hours of their time. And we're very um, territorial about their mm. puppets. Actually, two uh, two you know. people with puppets, and they both oh. have contributed stories to this very same podcast. Hey, I'm not. I think puppets are cool, oh, and mm-hmm. I can't really operate one. It takes guys. Some talent. Let's see how she walks. Oh back. shit! Really God, man, I'm really her, digging my grave. Hold her feet to the fire. <laughs> I'm just saying, this family was weird, man, and they're weird because they also dressed up, even though they were behind the scenes. You Ooh, know what I'm saying? Dedicated. Yes. So, okay. Guys, tweet at Ghoul Talk Pod. Uh, <laughs> hashtag puppet love or something. You know, make up your own hashtag. Puppet freaks. You guys puppet. are younger than I am. Come on. Um, Isn't everybody? Except yes. Me? <laughs> Other than Marley, who was dead to begin with. Oof. No doubt yeah. about that. Yeah, I read it. Um, I haven't read it in a long time, but I read it again mm-hmm. uh, at the start of this holiday season uh, mm-hmm. because I thought it would be a fun thing to read. And it mm-hmm. was. It really holds up quite well. Sometimes, yeah. you know, the Dickens stuff where you can tell he's just padding it out so he can get paid a little more. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's pretty good. I love that. All things considered. Um, Did I tell you, uh, when I was in London in October, I went to Charles Dickens's house at night. Like, Blimey. we had gone out to dinner. Yeah. Well, now it's, like, ritzy in London. It's just, sure. like, I'm sure he lived in a couple different places in London, but a row house kind of thing. Not a row house, but, like, you know, like a row of... Um, housing. <laughs> There's no real, yeah, differentiation. Anyway, it's rich and whatever. And we had gone to dinner and it was pretty late. And I was, it was like super close. So we went over and I was really excited and we were all kind of drunk. Oh, and, you know, we weren't being disorderly. We weren't fucking with the house or anything. We were just okay. excited. And this woman, like almost with, I mean, I would say within three minutes, came outside and like, can you tone it down? It was like maybe 10 p.m. Oh, God. Yeah. <laughs> oh, and they, yeah. Refuse that. Oh, man. Mm-hmm. She was a real <clears throat> Scrooge about it, huh? <laughs> <laughs> We're having fun. Oh, oh, Christmas time. Yep, yep, yep. Yeah, man. Yep. Yeah, man. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. But you know, 
you know, as we've told them before, Christmas time for a while in Victorian England and thereabouts. Christmas Eve was really a time for sharing of the ghost stories. What do you say? Yeah, that's true. That's true. I promised you. Hmm. Yeah, I don't know what accent that was, but nope. I, it's, <laughs> I don't. <laughs> yeah, it's one of those like world accents, right? That anyone listening. Oh god, what was that called? The North Atlantic accent that all like the the actors would do back in like oh, Audrey yeah. Hepburn day. And oh, stuff. yeah, and like well, FDR, I feel like had that accent. Totally, like kind of nasally. Well, and now I don't mean to brag or anything, but I'm most Here newscast. Oh God! <laughs> most oh, newscast. I'm losing you. Uh, sounds like it's dropping out. Look, they won't. They want to know I'm just, that most newscasters now train uh, to have like a you know non-regional accent, and the mm. most non-regional accent is that of the region around Dayton, Ohio. So okay, I'm just saying. I mean, who agreed that that was the most non-regional accent? Everybody from Dayton, probably. Yeah, Mm -hmm. we took a vote, and we all agreed. (laughs) We decided. Well, that's fine. Maybe you know. I guess when you've got nothing else, at least you've got that. Okay. (laughs) If you call nothing else light or the. Those are my fists flying through the air. uh, Yeah, ice cube trays. (laughs) Ice cube trays. Yeah, and oh. Rob Lowe and Allison Danny and Martin well, Sheen. Not be too and proud I guess of Rob you know, Lowe. That's right. I don't we know, know why what I he did. <laughs> Martin Sheen. How about that? I met sure. him. You know, did really? I tell you that? I get. Yeah. Well, you guys all probably know each other. That's right. Yeah, <laughs> he went to my high school before it was uh, co-ed. You guys were in the same year. Oh, what's up, wow. fellow youngsters? No, I'm, wow. I'm picturing him pretending to be really young, like with a wow. backwards baseball cap yeah, on. Walk it back. <laughs> Talk about walking it back. Hey, Lindsay. Yeah, I, just, I just turned 70. Happy birthday to me. My eyes are great, even though I can't see a fucking thing right now. But they cleared you for glaucoma and stuff, so that's good yeah, that's at your true. age. It's, it's fine. I mean, I got an eye replacement years ago, Ooh. you know. <laughs> like, once you hit 68, you really got to think about it as a thing. Sure. Ooh. Anyway. Yeah. Yeah. So Christmas, when I learned, when we learned that about Christmas Eve being like a night for ghost stories, it really yeah. rose up. I mean, I like the holidays, any holiday, really. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. But that really rose up. It's kind of like, is that yeah, why I like it adds it a, another so layer creepy? of uh, charm, I think, certainly yeah. to adult uh, mm-hmm. Christmas and holiday celebrations. Where it's, yeah, that's it's right. not as fun anymore as when you're a kid, you no, know? No, that's right. Well, and I think, like, part of the reason I liked it for so long was, like, the Santa stuff is actually really creepy if you think about it. Sure. Yeah. Gets into everybody's house and eats food uh, every time. What's to stop him from just murdering everyone? Nothing. Nothing. Well, I mean, he's on the clock. I think, really, it's a race against time, and that's Mm. why. The amazing race. Plus, he's slowed down by cookies and, yeah, amazing race. Exactly. Mm. Santa's. Amazing race. Just watched the Santa Claus last night. Still holds up pretty well. Tim Allen? Yeah. I've never seen it. It's pretty good. You know, I mean, for what Mm. it is. Yeah. I I I had this great idea for a a parody of it, which you wouldn't do the full movie, but you could do like a trailer parody Mm. of it. Mm -hmm. Or rather a a trailer of a parody of that movie. Sure, I'm listening. Yeah. So it's called the Dylan Claus. Get this. Same conceit. Mm. Some guy comes out because he hears someone on the roof. Mm-hmm. Then the body falls off the roof, 
and it's Bob Dylan, but he disappears. And as soon mm. as you put on his harmonica, you start turning into Bob Dylan. And by you, I mean the, the main character in the film. Yeah. And, you know, it'd be kind of funny. I don't know. I'm not doing it justice. <laughs> uh, nobody steal this. I already tra- patent pending, so... Um, yeah, yeah, no, they can't take it. You've said it out you know, loud. You, and you find some actor, you, patent, right? you know, like uh, like Daniel Day-Lewis. Maybe this is his return to acting after he's retired sure. for a few years. When he's, yeah, he's just a little bored at home. And, and yeah. mm-hmm. he gets to show off his best Bob Dylan impression because everybody's got one. Oof. So it's perfect for that yep. sort of thing. Mm-hmm. You know? Yeah. yeah. Maybe it could be a different, like, great actor in every scene so they Ooh, could all... Sure. You know, so you really Daniel like Day Lewis, Paul Giamatti. Mm-hmm. Oh no, no, you lost me already in this because that uh, guy has the same character every time. So I Bob disagree. Dylan would sound exactly like his John Adams. Ooh, maybe Jacob Dylan. Now that he's a little older, a little wiser, like we get him I in like there. That. I like that. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. You that think he'll play the just... young Bob Dylan in like a future Bob Dylan biopic? I mean, they better do it fast because that dude's probably like fifty years old. Jacob. Yeah. Yeah. No, he's Bob 90. Dylan is like eighty. <laughs> yeah. 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 I'm I'm as old like Bob Dylan's my age. It's like you know. Yeah, 70. yeah, yeah. Yeah, you guys went to high school together, right? That's right. Yeah, With Martin cool. Shane, so he also cool. had his eyes replaced. You know. Yeah, just like me. So he could see that sweet. Uh, what did he win? Like a Nobel Prize? Oh God! Yeah, yeah, I think he did. You know, I'm just gonna say it. I don't really. <laughs> you know, I grew up uh, really disliking Oof. him, but mm-hmm. I, I think he's fine now. I, I never got super into him. I have like the greatest hits album. You know what I mean? Yeah, um, right. Sure. And there's some I mean, look, stuff. it's like you. Can, I think there's also this thing where you can acknowledge somebody's like a musical, like really, no. really important. Mm-hmm. No, you have to love like him or love or, him or yeah, list him. Okay. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, no, but his holiday <laughs> album. To get us back oh, on on track for no, no, Christmas, no, 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 no. it's real bad. It came out a few yeah. years ago, and it is terrible. It can't be good. It cannot terrible. be good. There's no way. I thought it could be all right because Tom Petty has had a couple R.I.P. Uh, a couple yeah. of Dee's Holiday songs, and you know he's sort of just been doing a sort of modified Bob Dylan impression his whole career. So mm-hmm. I, there could have been something, it's debatable, but there was nothing there. Yeah. Well, I mean uh, that in the most respectful way, uh, sure. Mister yeah. Petty. Yeah. May he rest in peace. I like Tom Petty's songs more than I like Bob Dylan's songs. Oh, yeah, I, I really just mean like, like his Tom voice and singing and stuff. But, but Yeah, yeah, I get you. I get you. I'm with you. Anyway. Mm. Huh. Well, I don't know if I like that, but I will make a confession. Another mm. one. Yeah. yeah. Getting like, everything out You know, here, Father right? Daniel, you know, I'll just tell you everything. Uh, you know, yes, my child. Uh, <laughs> ooh. Um, my mom had those, uh, you know, the... Um, the Special Olympics, like, uh, benefit CDs that were, like, Christmas Oh, hell yeah, albums. very special yeah. Christmas. Mm-hmm. And they were yes. pretty good, yeah. Yeah, they're great. They're good. Well, there was one where Chris Cornell, RIP, did a version of Ave Maria yeah. in English, and it's yeah. fucking good. Oh, really? I I've never song. listened to it. It's in my what? iTunes. Okay. I have it, yeah, all of those. Uh, look, and I'm not a Soundgarden fan, really, really at all. No, but that song, he did... <laughs> I loved it. Wow. Okay. It I saw it yeah. just like two nights ago. I was reorganizing yeah. my Christmas and holiday playlist for the year. And because oh, sure. uh, <laughs> yeah. I have a, probably, you know, like a thousand Christmas songs and I only need mm. maybe a hundred of them max, you know, like yeah, that I would sure. actually listen to any given Because the other 900 are like Bob Dylan versions of <laughs> yeah. every Christmas song. Cool, or just cool. like mopey yeah. stuff or like awful yeah. pop stars redoing All I Want for yeah. Christmas Is You, which nobody Ugh. needs that. 
No. No one There's ever one needs to cover that song. And it's fine. Yeah. No, like why <laughs> Mariah does Carey didn't need to cover that it... song. <laughs> and she did. <laughs> did someone it wasn't her originally? No, no, but like she she did the original but then she like redid it a few years ago, like re recorded <laughs> it and re released it. And it was the I mean, the re release version was terrible. Yeah, no shit. Yeah. She doesn't need to sing anymore. She had like a an angel's voice for a mm-hmm. long time. And she's I she's amazing. I love I love Mariah Carey, but like she doesn't need to do any of that shit anymore. Yeah, it's fine. And babe. I love that you made your yeah. mark. Oh my god. And Leave that legacy. So much money every year off of that and she deserves <laughs> it too. Yeah, check out Chris Cornell's Ave Maria and see what That's you think. wild. I mm-hmm. yeah, I don't really like most of their stuff either, I guess, but I really loved yep. his uh, James Bond theme, which was a shocker to many. Oh. It was so such an unconventional choice. Mm. But why are we talking know. about that? I'm I sorry. Don't know. I'm sorry. I don't know. Because <clears throat> we're excited about the holidays. And why am okay. I clearing my throat loudly into the microphone? Because you want to talk <clears throat> about the tea you're drinking to quench your throat? Uh, yeah, I'm just having a little <laughs> holiday tea. <laughs> Comfort and joy by the Republic of Tea. Sure. Ah. Uh, mm. Mm. Mm, yeah. We're here in front of this roaring fire, which I have not commented upon previously, oh, but yeah. it's been crackling in my getting, getting a little cans. warm. Yeah, I put a mic right in front of it so that we yeah. can really pick That's it up nice. clearly. You really the mic it, yeah. is smoking and it smells oh, like mm-hmm. metal and plastic burning, but I think it's That's fine. That's okay. I think it's fine. That's okay. Just aim it like toward away from you. You know, just aim it away from you. It's fine. You're the other people in the your house. The smoke from the mic okay. should mostly get sucked out through the uh, through the chimney. So I'm not too worried about. That's it. how that works. So it should it should do that. Hey man. Makes sense. That Don't makes tell sense. me how it works. Okay. Wow. Uh, Chimney yeah. doctor up in here. Before we get to the main event, though, Ooh, because yeah. it's timely, we should, I mean, this might be opening a can, can of worms that we might want to edit out, but did you read? That's worm noises. <laughs> yeah. Was that worm, believable? That was good. Ew. Yeah, yeah that was good. Um, did you read the New York Times about UFOs? Yes. Okay. Yes. I was just I sending that video should... around today. It is wild. Crazy. It's nuts. It's like, uh, it's nuts. And I feel like this is topical. I know it's a holiday episode, but I feel like it's topical to all of this because it's creepy. Oh, because and you believe that all of the religious figures from Judeo-Christianity are actually aliens that came down. Is that where yeah. you're going? Like Jesus yeah. is an alien? Yeah. That's a legit theory. <laughs> no, that's not what I was going to say. Okay. Well, I, I don't know. Respectfully you know, disagree. I mean, Sure. Okay. Sure. 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 Uh, a spirited debate, and you know, we could talk about it another time too, and really get into the weeds. But I think it's really interesting. I don't know where I land on it right now, but I the aliens am. existing or Jesus being an alien. I don't think <laughs> Jesus. Well, dude, people I, really do believe that. I'm, I'm sure they do, and no shade on them. I have not done any or thought about that as a concept at all. I'm saying I'm torn between this latest news being aliens or being like American military technology that they are flexing their muscles about in and front of the world so that everybody it. gets yeah. Mm-hmm. right. Yeah, that's yeah. interesting. Sure. Okay. Yeah, I could buy yeah. that. Riff raff, street you raff. Think? I could buy that quickly. What um, do you think? I don't know, man. It's a pretty wild video. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah. I don't know. I don't know. Mm-hmm. It is mm-hmm. kind of crazy because if that is real, it just feels like there hasn't been a ton of reaction about it. You know, yeah. like I, I saw it in NPR and I saw it on the New York Times. 
But it's like, holy shit, the U.S. government maybe just released <laughs> evidence I know. of like some sort of, it's a technology that we do not publicly know how to create. Maybe, right. maybe from, you know, some mm-hmm. sort of other, other world. Mm-hmm. And it's like barely even enough to make news because that's how because that's up how everything bad is right is. now. I know. Like, I didn't even know about it. We Merry holidays, everyone. <laughs> <laughs> I know. We went to our friend's house the other day and they brought it up and we had no idea it was it was nice you know because then they had they had been like really deep into it so they you know talked about all of the evidence and yeah. evidence for what pieces and yeah it's creepy like the stuff. way it like appears to rotate and it has no like heat signature trailing off it mm. which indicates that whatever the propulsion is like isn't combustion based because there would be you know like right right st- heat coming so out isn't of it. it like the eye like people are talking about it be like being like an ionic yeah when you look at it kind of, they, mm-hmm. they switch the infrared from like hot white to hot mm-hmm. black or whatever and uh-huh. and you can even see it more clearly after it switches but it's like the object itself is very hot but then mm-hmm. the air around it for some reason is much cooler is than mm-hmm. the air everywhere else or something hmm. like it, it's very strange yeah anyway hmm. spooky. yeah let's uh thinking about that one talk about it next time too but yeah topical timely creepy yeah for sure for sure for sure yeah so uh you know with this episode because it's holidays and you know how much we love holidays we wanted to give you guys a little something special you know that's right and following the tradition of christmas eve being a time to tell scary stories daniel and i have um taken a lot of time to really look through some of the scariest, uh, you know, Victorian slash Edwardian era tales, and maybe after Edwardian era too. I'm not sure what nope. years dates from 1930s. Nope. That's after Edward. <laughs> anyway. Sure, sure, sure. Uh, yeah. To, you know, give you a nice little, uh, uh, like audio book, audio story. Yeah. Of yeah. Some creepy ass shit. And you don't even have to pay for it like Audible. So No, it's free. But I think as a little bit of an intro, um, at least to mine, um, just so people Selfish. know, <laughs> it's all about me, guys. You have to know. At my age, I feel like I could, I need to take my kicks where I can get them. Sure. So, That's yeah. Fair. Sure. Um, well, my story is from the, uh, the sort of like preeminent... Victorian era ghost story writer Montague Rhodes James, also known as M.R. Mr. James. James. <laughs> Mr. James, uh, who was actually a university professor and huge nerd who was very interested in um, like language and paleontology. Hmm. So, like the written language of ancient cultures and that kind of shit. But he was also uh, really into it's ghost like the stories. original Tolkien. You know, with his I hope they, I hope they were friends, but I think their eras. I don't even know if M.R. James was still alive. Nah, yeah, uh, probably not. Well, definitely not when he wrote Lord of the Rings. Yeah, he was born oh, in 1862. He, oh, hmm. he wrote both. Oh, great. Yeah, it's like a, it's like a trilogy. <laughs> uh, so M.R. James Keep going. <laughs> was born in 1852 and died in 1836. So. 
they overlapped, but uh, I think Lord of the Rings, I just played this game over the weekend, a trivia game about inventions, and Lord of the Rings was written or published in the 50s, hmm. 1950s. Anyway, whatever. Yeah. So M.R. James um, is known for these ghost stories, and some of them are super creepy, and some of them are pretty dated, but... Um, yeah, I think the one that I am reading to you was one that totally freaked me out when I was reading it. So I hope it does for you, too. Yeah. Um, and what about you, Daniel? Um, I don't have much of an intro for mine. I just mm. found it on a list of Christmas ego stories. Yeah. And it was short and kind of spooky. Mm-hmm. Absolutely ooky. Um, I mm-hmm. do have some mm-hmm. uh, literature-related uh, Oh, please. Join me Hello. for just a moment. For a special edition of Ghoul Talk Book Club. Oh, yeah. So this year, <laughs> uh, 2017, meh, pretty bad in a lot of ways. But really? a really interesting and so. great thing that's happened this year. Mm-hmm. So last year, uh, we had that uh, book, ooh, Ghostland by Colin Dickey, I think his name was, uh, which okay. I have still not read yet, but it seemed like a really cool book. Hoping yeah, to grab it in paperback mm-hmm. now okay. that it's out in paperback this year. Mm-hmm. Um, okay. But like a couple other books that, that sort of remind me of that in that same mm. vein mm-hmm. have uh, all come out this Ooh. year. Nice. Uh, and I'm very excited about them. The first one I saw uh, in a little New Yorker write up, it's called The Ghost, A Cultural History by Susan Ooh. Owens. Just I came out uh, okay. th- like this fall. Looks mm. really good. Really okay. want to read it. Okay. Super stoked. And then I yeah. saw, um, I think in, via an Atlas Obscura article, around mm, Halloween time, uh, Joanna Ebenstein, mm. uh, or, uh, and, and Will Self, I guess, is the co-author. Um, mm. They released, also this fall, uh, a book called Death, A Graveside Companion. And it's like Ooh. this nice, cool, um, it's got like like a collection of like how cultures have like dealt with and like memento mm. mori and stuff like that. Yeah. Um, like Ooh. background on like uh, common um, depictions of death and like different mm-hmm. like uh, tropes and motifs like the dance macabre. Uh, mm-hmm. It's so cool. Like and it's into it. It's yeah. only twenty five dollars and forty five cents hardcover. Ooh. I really got to get wow. get me a copy of that. Yeah, yeah. That's yeah. like library stuff. It's it's twenty five yeah. forty five right now on Amazon, and the list price is forty bones. So well, I mean, like, couldn't you get it from the library? I mean, you like it, and then you could buy it. That's true. That's true. I feel like I like it without. Yeah. I, I saw some of the stuff <laughs> from true. it in this you Atlas Obscure article. Treat yourself. Yeah. It's right, right, right. pretty cool. The table, mm, like neat. the sections in it are one, the art of dying; two, examining the dead; three, memorializing the dead; four, yeah, yeah, the personification yeah, yeah, yeah. of death; five, symbolizing yeah, 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 yeah. death. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's Love cool. It. It's cool. It's Ooh, cool. Ooh, personification cool. of death. Ooh, that's cool. I know. I know. Very I gotta get that. Mm-hmm. So, like that book, Ghost to Cultural History, mm-hmm. and then what was the other one I saw this year? Oh. uh... This one's a little bit more for me, and it may be a little more niche, but mm. it seems like a cool thing to have in your in your pocketbook. And it's if you have Kindle Unlimited, it's apparently free. Yeah. Um, it's only nine ninety nine to buy on your Kindle, mm. okay. or twenty dollars paperback, and it is called Understanding Cemetery Symbols: A Field Guide for Historic um, that's Graveyards. Cool. Yeah, released in August of two thousand seventeen by uh, Twee Snyder, I think is how you say it. T U I. S N I D E R. So look that up too. Neat. Yeah, maybe. Yeah. Maybe I'm bad with names. I mean, I don't know. That yeah, they neat. All I like all of look those. Look so cool. All primarily written by women. I mean, women 
women are better writers and they're the only literate people in the world. So that makes a lot more sense, you know? Yeah. Because you still can't read and write because you're a guy. It's true. I can. I'm a woman. Um, that Those all sound really good. And I think uh, what would be really cool if, you know, some, you know, over the next few months as we pepper in, you know, different stories, we should do some book reviews too. Oh, much like our movie shoot. club. We should really formalize this Ghoul Talk book club situation yeah. because winter is great for reading books. Uh, curled up by the <laughs> fire. Yeah. Well, and the other, you know, when I was talking about MR James, which I should have mentioned, Mr. Floppy James. now, his uh, ghost stories from an antiquary was his first mm. book published in 1904. So holds up. Um, that could be one of our books too, and that's where the story I'm going to read is is from. That so, you know, if you get a little taste from tonight. We can also delicious MR. Uh, oh. We can, you know, <laughs> yo. <laughs> uh, it's late, you know, after dark. Yeah, yeah, sure. It's winter solstice. The so longest it's dark, dark of the year. Oh, really? <laughs> Um, yeah, wouldn't that be fun? Book club, yeah, I'm yeah. looking for an excuse to buy these. So uh, that yeah, would, that I'm interested. It. I'm interested. I definitely want to do that. So we'll uh, map it out and we can tease it so you guys know what to read beforehand, yes. so you're yes, not yes, lost. Yes, 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 yes. During the apps, I like it. Cool, 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 cool. Okay. Well, well I think yeah. this is going to be a four-hour episode. That's fine. Yeah. <laughs> Happy holidays. <laughs> You're hiding yeah. in a closet right now, avoiding your family with earbuds in. You're welcome. Yeah, get ready to get shit your pants in the closet and Ooh, have to explain so that. So scary. That there's poop on your coat, <laughs> Grandma. Well, you know, you could just leave it there, and maybe she'll think it was hers. You know, mm. people get real crazy over the holidays. That's so. true. A little too Whatever. much eggnog. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> oh, man. Yeah, I do. I've never had real eggnog. I don't really? want to go. I don't want to go off on another tangent. I love the soy nog; it's delicious. <laughs> okay. But man, I read this the Southern New Yorker essay about eggnog, and I really want to <laughs> make some homemade eggnog. It looked yeah. Oh, yeah. it looks so good. The picture they good. used, yeah. the photo. Oh boy. Mm-hmm. Ooh, Eggnog's great. Thinking about it's it like, now. <laughs> you could have like an inch of eggnog, and that's it. And it's great. It's a too meal. Much more. It's a hearty it's too, meal. Yeah. Yes. It's a protein uh situation yeah it's delicious it's like you're eating or drinking french toast yes you know that's actually exactly what it is so you're welcome cut out those carbs guys it's very Mm -hmm. healthy yeah that's right happy holidays get ripped happy holidays get ripped get (laughs) ripped you know know what we're about (laughs) it should you know what i should the original muscle market yeah where's the eggnog lobby i could market and then get rich you know yeah, maybe we cool. should go do that now before anyone hears this and gets that idea. Good call. All right, I'll Happy hold holidays. off on releasing it until we're millionaires. Yeah. That's right, of course. Of course. Okay. Well, I hope you guys get scared and shit your pants in your grandma's closet. All right. <laughs> Happy holidays. I love a good ghost story as much as the next fellow. Smee by A.M. Burridge. No, said Jackson with a deprecatory smile. I'm sorry, I don't want to upset your game. I shan't be doing that because you'll have plenty without me. But I'm not playing any games of hide-and-seek. 
It was Christmas Eve, and we were a party of 14 with just the proper leavening of youth. We had dined well, it was the season for childish games, and we were all in the mood for playing them. All, that is, except Jackson. When somebody suggested hide-and-seek, there was rapturous and almost unanimous approval. His was the one dissentient voice. It was not like Jackson to spoil sport or refuse to do as others wanted. Somebody asked him if he were feeling seedy. No, he answered. I feel perfectly fit, thanks. But, he added with a smile which softened without retracting the flat refusal, I'm not playing hide-and-seek. Why not? someone asked. He hesitated for a moment before replying. I sometimes go and stay at a house where a girl was killed. She was playing hide-and-seek in the dark. She didn't know the house very well. There was a door that led to the servant's staircase. When she was chased, she thought the door led to a bedroom. She opened the door and jumped, and landed at the bottom of the stairs. She broke her neck, of course. We all looked serious. Mrs. Fernley said, How terrible! And were you there when it happened? Jackson shook his head sadly. No, he said. But I was there when something else happened. Something worse. What could be worse than that? This was, said Jackson. He hesitated for a moment. Then he said, I wonder if any of you have ever played a game called Smee. It's much better than hide-and-seek. The name comes from It's Me, of course. Perhaps you'd like to play it instead of hide-and-seek. Let me tell you the rules of the game. Every player is given a sheet of paper. All the sheets except one are blank. On the last sheet of paper is written Smee. Nobody knows who Smee is except Smee himself or herself. You turn out the lights, and Smee goes quietly out of the room and hides. After a time, the others go off to search for Smee, but of course they don't know who they're looking for. When one player meets another, he challenges him by saying, Smee. The other player answers Smee, and they continue searching. But the real Smee doesn't answer when someone challenges. The second player stays quietly beside him. Presently, they'll be discovered by a third player. He will challenge and receive no answer, and he will join the first two. This goes on until all the players are in the same place. The last one to find Smee has to pay a forfeit. It's a good, noisy, amusing game. In a big house, it often takes a long time for everyone to find Smee. Perhaps you'd like to try. I'll happily pay my forfeit and sit here by the fire while you play. It sounds like a good game, I remarked. Have you played it too, Jackson? Yes, he answered. I played it in the house that I was telling you about. And she was there? The girl who broke... No, no, said someone else. He told us he wasn't there when she broke her neck. Jackson thought for a moment. I don't know if she was there or not. I'm afraid she was. I know that there were 13 of us playing the game, and there were only 12 people in the house. And I didn't know the dead girl's name. When I heard that whispered name in the dark, it didn't worry me. But I tell you, I'm never going to play that kind of game again. It made me quite nervous for a long time. I prefer to pay my forfeit at once. We all stared at him. His words did not make sense at all. Tim Vouse was the kindest man in the world. He smiled at us all. This sounds like an interesting story, he said. Come on, Jackson. You can tell it to us instead of paying a forfeit. Very well, said Jackson. And here is his story. Have you met the Sangstons? They're cousins of mine, and they live in Surrey. Five years ago, they invited me to go and spend Christmas with them. 
It was an old house with lots of unnecessary passages and staircases. A stranger could get lost in it quite easily. While I went down for Christmas, Violet Sangston promised me that I knew most of the other guests. Unfortunately, I couldn't get away from my job until Christmas Eve. All the other guests had arrived there the previous day. I was the last to arrive, and I was only just in time for dinner. I said hello to everyone I knew, and Violet Sangston introduced me to the people that I didn't know. Then it was time to go into dinner. That is perhaps why I didn't hear the name of a tall, dark-haired, handsome girl whom I hadn't met before. Everyone was in rather a hurry, and I'm always bad at catching people's names. She looked cold and clever. She didn't look at all friendly, but she looked interesting, and I wondered who she was. I didn't ask because I was sure that someone would speak to her by name during the meal. Unluckily, however, I was a long way from her at the table. I was sitting next to Miss Gorman, and as usual, Mrs. Gorman was being very bright and amusing. Her conversation is always worth listening to, and I completely forgot to ask the name of the dark, proud girl. There were twelve of us, including the Sangstons themselves. We were all young, or trying to be young. Jack and Violet Sangston were the oldest, and their seventeen-year-old son, Reggie, was the youngest. It was Reggie who suggested Smee when the talk turned to games. He told us the rule of the game, just as I've described them to you. Jack Sangston warned us all. If you're going to play games in the dark, he said, please be careful of the back stairs on the first floor. A door leads to them, and I've often thought about taking the door off. In the dark, a stranger to the house could think they were walking into a room. A girl really did break her neck on those stairs. I asked how it happened. It was about ten years ago before we came here. There was a party and they were playing hide-and-seek. This girl was looking for somewhere to hide. She heard somebody coming and ran along the passage to get away. She opened the door, thinking it led to a bedroom. She planned to hide in there until the seeker had gone. Unfortunately, it was the door that led back to the back stairs. She planned to hide in there until the seeker had gone. Unfortunately, it was the door that led to the back stairs. She fell straight down to the bottom of the stairs. She was dead when they picked her up. We all promised to be careful. Mrs. Gorman even made a little joke about living to be 90. You see, none of us had known the poor girl, and we did not want to feel sad on Christmas Eve. Well, we all started the game immediately after dinner. Young Reggie Sangston went round making sure all the lights were off except the ones in the servants' rooms and in the sitting room where we were. We then prepared twelve sheets of paper. Eleven of them were blank, and one of them had Smee written on it. Reggie mixed them all up. Then we each took one. The person who got the paper with Smee on it had to hide. I looked at mine and saw that it was blank. A moment later, all the electric lights went out. In the darkness, I heard someone moving very quietly to the door. After a minute, somebody blew a whistle, and we all rushed to the door. I had no idea who was Smee. For five or ten minutes, we were all rushing up and down passages and in and out of rooms, challenging each other and answering, Smee? Smee? After a while, the noise died down, and I guessed that someone had found Smee. After a time, I found a group of people all sitting on some narrow stairs. I challenged and received no answer. So, Smee was there. I hurriedly joined the group. Presently, two more players arrived. Each one was hurrying to avoid being last. Jack Sangston was last and was given a forfeit. I think we're all here now, aren't we? He remarked. He lit a match, looked up the staircase, and began to count. Nine, ten, eleven, twelve, thirteen, he said, and then laughed. That's silly. There's one too many. The match went out, and he lit another and began to count. He got as far as twelve. Then he looked puzzled. There are thirteen people here, he said. I haven't counted myself yet. Oh, nonsense, I laughed. You probably began with yourself, and now you want to count yourself twice. His son took out his electric torch. It gave a better light than the matches, and we all began to count. 
Of course, there were 12 of us. Jack laughed. Well, he said, I was sure I counted 13 twice. From halfway up the stairs, Violet Sangston spoke nervously. I thought there was someone sitting two steps up above me. Have you moved, Captain Ransom? The captain said that he hadn't. But I thought there was someone sitting between Mrs. Sangston and me. Just for a moment, there was an uncomfortable something in the air. A cold finger seemed to touch us all. For that moment, we all felt that something odd and unpleasant had just happened, and was likely to happen again. Then we laughed at ourselves and at each other, and we felt normal again. There were only twelve of us, and that was that. Still laughing, we marched back to the sitting room to begin again. This time, I was Smee. Violet Sangston found me while I was searching for a hiding place. That game didn't last long. Soon there were twelve people, and the game was over. Violet felt cold and wanted her jacket. Her husband went up to their bedroom to fetch it. As soon as he'd gone, Reggie touched me on the arm. He was looking pale and sick. Quick, he whispered. I've got to talk to you. Something terrible has happened. We went into the breakfast room. What's the matter? I asked. I don't know. You were Smee last time, weren't you? Well, of course, I didn't know who Smee was. While Mother and the others ran to the west side of the house and found you, I went east. There's a deep clothes cupboard in my bedroom. It looked like a good hiding place. I thought that perhaps Smee might be there. I opened the door in the dark and touched somebody's hand. Smee, I whispered. There was no answer. I thought I'd found Smee. Well, I don't understand it, but suddenly I had a strange cold feeling. I can't describe it, but I felt that something was wrong. So I turned on my electric torch and there was nobody there. Now I'm sure I touched a hand and nobody could get out of the cupboard because I was standing in the doorway. What do you think? You imagined that you touched a hand, I said. He gave a short laugh. <laughs> I knew you would say that, he said. Of course I imagined it. That's the only explanation, isn't it? I agreed with him. I could see that he still felt shaken. Together we returned to the sitting room for another game of Smee. The others were all ready and waiting to start again. Perhaps it was my imagination, although I'm almost sure that it was not. But I had a feeling that nobody was really enjoying the game anymore. But everyone was too polite to mention it. All the same, I had the feeling that something was wrong. All the fun had gone out of the game. Something deep inside me was trying to warn me. Take care, it whispered. Take care. There was some unnatural, unhealthy influence at work in the house. Why did I have this feeling? Because Jack Sangston had counted 13 people instead of 12? Because his son imagined he had touched someone's hand in an empty cupboard? I tried to laugh at myself, but I did not succeed. Well, we started again. While we were all chasing the unknown Smee, we were all as noisy as ever. But it seemed to me that most of us were just acting. We were no longer enjoying the game. At first I stayed with the others, but for several minutes no Smee was found. I left the main group and started searching on the first floor at the west side of the house. And there, while I was feeling my way along, I bumped into a pair of human knees. I put out my hand and touched a soft, heavy curtain. Then I knew where I was. There were tall, deep windows with window seats at the end of the passage. The curtains reached to the ground. Somebody was sitting in a corner of one of the window seats behind a curtain. Aha! I thought. I've caught Smee. So I pulled the curtain to one side and touched a woman's arm. It was a dark, moonless night outside. I couldn't see the woman sitting in the corner of the window seat. Smee? I whispered. 
There was no answer. When Smee is challenged, he or she does not answer. So I sat down beside her to wait for the others. Then I whispered, What's your name? And out of the darkness beside me, the whisper came, Brenda Ford. I did not know the name, but I guessed at once who she was. I knew every girl in the house by name except one, and that was the tall, pale, dark girl. So here she was sitting beside me on the window seat, shut in between a heavy curtain and a window. I was beginning to enjoy the game. I wondered if she was enjoying it too. I whispered one or two rather ordinary questions to her and received no answer. Smee is a game of silence. It is a rule of the game that Smee and the person or persons who have found Smee have to keep quiet. This, of course, makes it harder for the others to find them. But there was nobody else about. I wondered, therefore, why she was insisting on silence. I spoke again and I got no answer. I began to feel a little annoyed. Perhaps she's one of those cold, clever girls who have a poor opinion of all men, I thought. She doesn't like me and she's using the rules of the game as an excuse for not speaking. Well, if she doesn't like sitting here with me, I certainly don't want to sit with her. I turned away from her. I hope someone finds us soon, I thought. As I sat there, I realized that I disliked sitting beside this girl very much indeed. That was strange. The girl I had seen at dinner had seemed likable in a cold kind of way. I noticed her and wanted to know more about her. But now I felt really uncomfortable beside her. The feeling of something wrong, something unnatural, was growing. I remembered touching her arm and trembled with horror. I wanted to jump up and run away. I prayed that someone else would soon come along. Just then I heard light footsteps in the passage. Somebody on the other side of the curtain brushed against my knees. The curtain moved to one side and a woman's hand touched my shoulder. It's me, whispered a voice that I recognized at once. It was Mrs. Gorman. Of course, she received no answer. She came and sat down beside me, and at once I felt very much better. It's Tony Jackson, isn't it? She whispered. Yes, I whispered back. You're not Smee, are you? No, she's on my other side. She reached out across me. I heard her fingernails scratch a woman's silk dress. Hello, Smee. How are you? Who are you? Oh, is it against the rules to talk? Never mind, Tony. We'll break the rules. Do you know, Tony, this game is beginning to annoy me a little. I hope they aren't going to play it all evening. I'd like to play a nice, quiet game altogether beside a warm fire. Me too, I agreed. Can't you suggest something to them? There's something rather unhealthy about this particular game. I'm sure I'm being very silly, but I can't get rid of the idea that we've got an extra player. Someone who ought to not be here at all. That's exactly how I felt, but I didn't say so. However, I felt very much better. Mrs. Gorman's arrival had chased away my fears. We sat talking. I wonder when the others will find us, said Mrs. Gorman. After a time, we heard the sound of feet and young Reggie's voice shouting, Hello? Hello? Is anybody there? Yes, I answered. Is Mrs. Gorman with you? Yes. What happened to you? You've both got forfeits. We've all been waiting for you for hours. But you haven't found Smee yet, I complained. You haven't, you mean? I was Smee this time. But Smee is here with us, I cried. Yes, agreed Mrs. Gorman. The curtain was pulled back, and we sat looking into the eye of Reggie's electric torch. I looked at Mrs. Gorman, and then on my other side. Between me and the wall was an empty place on the window seat. I stood up at once, then I sat down again. I was feeling very sick, and the world seemed to be going round and round. There was somebody there, I insisted, because I touched her. So did I, said Mrs. Gorman, in a trembling voice. 
And I don't think anybody could have left this window seat without us knowing. Reggie gave a shaky little laugh. I remembered his unpleasant experience early that evening. Someone's been playing jokes, he said. Are you coming down? We were not very popular when we came down to the sitting room. I found the two of them sitting behind a curtain on a window seat, said Reggie. I went up to the tall, dark girl. So you pretended to be Smee and then went away, I accused her. She shook her head. Afterwards, we all played cards in the sitting room, and I was very glad. Sometime later, Jack Sangston wanted to talk to me. I could see that he was rather cross with me and soon told me the reason. Tony, he said, I suppose you're in love with Mrs. Gorman. That's your business, but please don't make love to her in my house during a game. You kept everyone waiting. It was very rude of you, and I'm ashamed of you. But we were not alone, I protested. There was someone else there. Someone who was pretending to be Smee. I believe it was that tall, dark girl, Miss Ford. She whispered her name to me. Of course, she refused to admit it afterwards. Jack Sangston stared at me. Miss who? He breathed. Brenda Ford, she said. Jack put a hand on my shoulder. Look here, Tony, he said. I don't mind a joke, but enough is enough. We don't want to worry the ladies. Brenda Ford is the name of the girl who broke her neck on the stairs. She was playing hide-and-seek here ten years ago. The End This is the Mezzotint by M.R. James. Some time ago, I believe I had the pleasure of telling you the story of an adventure which happened to a friend of mine by the name of Deniston during his pursuit of objects of art for the museum at Cambridge. He did not publish his experiences very widely upon his return to England, but they could not fail to become known to a good many of his friends and among others to the gentleman who at the time presided over an art museum at another university. It was to be expected that the story should make a considerable impression on the mind of a man whose vacation lay in lines similar to Deniston's, and that he should be eager to catch at any explanation of the matter which tended to make it seem improbable that he should ever be called upon to deal with so agitating an emergency. It was, indeed, somewhat consoling to to him to reflect that he was not expected to acquire ancient MSS for his institution. That was the business of the Shelburneian Library. The authorities of that night, if they pleased, ransack obscure corners of the continent for such matters. He was glad to be obliged at the moment to confine his attention to enlarging the already unsurpassed collection of English topographical drawings and engravings possessed by his museum. Yet, as it turned out, even a department so homely and familiar as this may have its dark corners, and to one of these, Mr. Williams was unexpectedly introduced. Those who have taken even the most limited interest in the acquisition of topographical pictures are aware that there is one London dealer whose aid is indispensable to their researches. Mr. J.W. Britnell publishes at short intervals very admirable catalogues of a large and constantly changing stock of engravings, plans, and old sketches of mansions, churches, and towns in England and Wales. These catalogues were, of course, the ABC of his subject, Mr. Williams. 
that as his museum already contained an enormous accumulation of topographical pictures, he was a regular rather than a copious buyer. And he looked he rather looked to Mr. Brittnell to fill up gaps in the rank and file of his collection than to supply him with rarities. Now, in February of last year, there appeared upon Mr. Williams's desk at the museum a catalog for Mr. Brittnell's emporium, and accompanying it was a typewritten communication from the dealer himself. This latter ran as follows. Dear sir, we beg to call your attention to number 978 in our accompanying catalog, which we shall be glad to send on your approval. Yours faithfully, J.W. Brittnell. To turn to number 978 in the accompanying catalogs was with Mr. Williams, as he observed to himself, the work of a moment, and in the place indicated he found the following entry. 978. Unknown. Interesting mezzotint. View of a manor house. Early part of the century. 15 by 10 inches. Black frame. 2 pounds. 25 pence. It was not especially exciting, and the price seemed high. However, as Mr. Brittnell, who knew his business and his customers, seemed to set store by it, Mr. Williams wrote a postcard asking for the article to be sent on approval, along with some other engravings and sketches which appeared in the same catalog. And so he passed, without much excitement of anticipation to the ordinary labors of the day. A parcel of any kind always arrives a day later than you expected, and that of Mr. Bristol proved, as I believe the right phrase goes, no exception to the rule. It was delivered at the museum by the afternoon post of Saturday, after Mr. Williams had left his work, and it was accordingly brought round to his rooms in college by the intendant, in order that he might not have to wait over Sunday before looking through it and returning such of the contents as he did not propose to keep. And here he found it when he came in to tea with a friend. The only item with which I am concerned was the rather large, black-framed mezzotint of which I have already quoted the short description given in Mr. Brittnell's catalog. Some more details of it will have to be given, though I cannot hope to put before you the look of the picture as clearly as it is present to my own eye. Very nearly the exact duplicate of it may be seen in good many old inn parlors, or in the passages of undisturbed country mansions at the present moment. It was a rather indifferent mezzotint, and an indifferent mezzotint is perhaps the worst form of engraving known. It presented a full view, a full-face view of a not very large manor house of the last century, with three rows of plain sashed windows with rusticated masonry about them, a parapet with balls or vases at the angles, and a small portico in the center. On either side were trees, and in front of the considerable expanse of lawn, the legend AWF Sculpsit was engraved on the narrow margin, and there was no further inscription. The whole thing gave the impression that it was the work of an amateur. What in the world Mr. Brittnell could mean by affixing the price of two pounds twenty-five pence to such an object was more than Mr. Williams could imagine. He turned it over with a good deal of contempt. Upon the back was a paper label, the left hand half of which had been torn off. All that remained were the ends of two lines of writing. The first had the letters N-G-L-E-Y Hall, the second S-X. EX. It would, perhaps, be just worthwhile to identify the place represented, which he could easily do with the help of a gazetteer, and then he would send it back to Mr. Brittnell with some remarks reflecting upon the judgment of that gentleman. He lighted the candles, for it was now dark, made the tea, and supplied the friend with whom he had been playing golf, 
for I believe the authorities of the University I write of indulge in that pursuit by way of relaxation. And tea was taken to the accompaniment of a discussion which golfing persons can imagine for themselves, but which the conscientious writer has no right to inflict upon any non-golfing persons. The conclusion arrived at was that certain strokes might have been better, and that in certain emergencies neither player had experienced that amount of luck with which a human has a right to expect. It was now that the friend, let us call him Professor Binks, took up the framed engraving and said, What's this place, Williams? Just what I'm going to try to find out, said Williams, going to the shelf for a gazetteer. Look at the back. Somethingly Hall, either in Sussex or Essex. Half the man's name's gone, you know. You don't happen to know it, I suppose. It's from that man Britnell, I suppose, isn't it, said Binks. Is it for the museum? Well, I think I should buy it if the price was five shillings, said Williams. But for some unearthly reason, he wants two guineas for it. I can't conceive why. It's a wretched engraving, and there aren't even any figures to give it life. It's not worth two guineas, I should think, said Binks. But I don't think it's so badly done. The moonlight seems rather good to me, and I should have thought there were figures, or at least a figure, just on the edge in front. Let's look, said Williams. Well, it's true the light is rather cleverly given. Where's your figure? Oh, yes, just the head in the very front of the picture. And indeed there was, hardly more than a black blot on the extreme edge of the engraving, the head of a man or woman, a good deal muffled up, the back turned to the spectator and looking towards the house. Williams had not noticed it before. Still, he said, though it's a cleverer thing than I thought, I can't spend two guineas of museum money on a picture of a place I don't know. Professor Binks had his work to do and soon went, and very nearly up to hall time, Williams was engaged in a vain attempt to identify the subject of his picture. If the vowel before the NG had only been left, it would, it would have been easy enough, he thought. But as it is, the name may be anything from Guestingly to Langley, and there are many more names ending like this than I thought. And this rotten book has no index of terminations. Hall in Mr. Williams' college was at seven. It need not be dwelled upon, the less so as he met their colleagues who had been playing golf during the afternoon, and words with which we have no concern were freely bandied across the table. Merely golfing words, I should hasten to explain. I suppose an hour or more to have been spent in what is called common room after dinner. Later in the evening, some few retired to Williams's rooms, and I have little doubt at that whist was played and tobacco smoked. During a lull in these operations, Williams picked up the mezzotint from the table without looking at it, and hand it to a person mildly interested in art, telling him where it had come from and the other particulars which we already know. The gentleman took it carelessly, looked at it, and said in a tone of some interest, It's really a very good piece of work, Williams. It is quite a feeling of the romantic period. The light is admirably managed, it seems to me, and the figure, though it's rather too grotesque, is somehow very impressive. Yes, isn't it? said Williams, who was just then busy giving whiskey and soda others of the company, and was unable to come across the room to look at the view again. It was by this time rather late in the evening, and the visitors were on the move. After they went, Williams was obliged to write a letter or two and clear up some odd bits of work. At last, some time past midnight, he was disposed to turn in, and he put out his lamp after lighting his bedroom candle. The picture lay face upwards on the table where the last man who had looked at it, put it, and it caught his eye as he turned the lamp down. 
What he saw made him very nearly drop the candle on the floor, and he declares now that if he had been left in the dark at that moment, he would have had a fit. But, as that did not happen, he was able to put down the light on the table and take a good look at the picture. It was indubitable, frankly impossible, no doubt, but absolutely certain. In the middle of the lawn in the front of the unknown, unknown house, there was a figure where no figure had been at five o'clock that afternoon. It was crawling on all fours towards the house, and it was muffled in a strange black garment with a white cross on the back. I do not know what is the ideal course to pursue in a situation of this kind. I can only tell you what Mr. Williams did. He took the picture by one corner and carried it across the passage to a second set of rooms which he possessed. There he locked it up in a drawer, sported the doors of both sets of rooms, and retired to bed. But first he wrote out and signed an account of the extraordinary change which the picture had undergone since it had come into his possession. Sleep visited him rather late, but it was consoling to reflect that the behavior of the picture did not depend upon his unsupported testimony. Evidently, the man who had looked at it the night before had seen something of the same kind as he had. Otherwise, he might have been tempted to think that something gravely wrong was happening either to his eyes or his mind. This possibility being fortunately precluded, two matters awaited him on the morning. He must take stock of the picture very carefully and call on a witness for the purpose, and he must take a determined effort to ascertain which house it was that was represented. He would therefore ask his neighbor Nisbet to breakfast with him, and he would subsequently spend a morning over the gazetteer. Nisbet was disengaged and arrived about 9.30. His host was not quite dressed, I'm sorry to say, even at this late hour. During breakfast, nothing was said about the mezzotint by William, save that he had a picture on which he wished for Nisbet's opinion. But those who are familiar with university life can picture for themselves the wide and delightful range of subject, subjects over which the conversation of two fellows of Canterbury College is likely to extend during the Sunday morning breakfast. Hardly a topic was left unchallenged, from golf to land, lawn tennis, yet I am bound to say that Williams was rather distraught, for his interest naturally centered on the very strange picture which now reposing face downwards in the drawer in the opposite room. The morning pipe was at last lighted, and the moment had arrived for which he looked. With very considerable, almost tremulous excitement, he ran across, unlocked the drawer, and, extracting the picture, still face downwards, ran back and put it into Nisbet's hands. Now, he said, Nisbet, I want you to tell me exactly what you see in that picture. Describe it, if you don't mind, rather minutely. I'll tell you why afterwards. Well, said Nisbet, I have here a view of a country house, English, I presume, by moonlight. Moonlight? You're sure of that? Certainly. The moon appears to be on the wane, if you wish for details, and there are clouds in the sky. All right, go on, I'll swear, added Williams in an aside. There was no moon when I saw it first. Well, there's not much more to be said, Nisbet continued. The house has one, two, three rows of windows, five in each row, except at the bottom where there's a porch instead of the middle one, and... But what about the figures? said Williams, with marked interest. There aren't any, said Nisbet. But... What? No figures on the grass in the front? Not a thing. You'll swear to that? Certainly I will. But there's just one thing. What? Why, one of the windows on the ground floor, left of the door, is open.
Is it really? My goodness! He must have got in, said Williams with great excitement. They hurried to the back of the sofa on which Nisbet was sitting and catching the picture from him, verified the matter for himself. It was quite true. There was no figure and there was the open window. Williams, after a moment of speechless surprise, went to the writing table and scribbled for a short time. Then he brought two papers to Nisbet and asked him to sign the first one. It was his own description of the picture, which you have just heard, and then to read the other, which was William's statement written the night before. What can it all mean? said Nisbet. Exactly, said Williams. Well, one thing I must do, or three things, now I think of it. I must find out from Garwood, this his last night's visitor, what he saw, and then I must get the thing photographed before it goes further, and then I must find out what the place is. I can do the photographing myself, said Nisbet, and I will, but you know, it looks very much as if we were assisting at the working out of a tragedy somewhere. The question is, has it happened already, or is it going to come off? You must find out what the place is. Yes, he said, looking at the picture again. I expect you're right. He has got in, and if I don't mistake, there will be the devil to pay in one of the rooms upstairs. Tell you what, said Williams, I'll take the picture across to the old green. This was the senior fellow of the college who had been bursar for many years. It's quite likely he'll know it. He'll have property in Essex and Sussex, and he must have been over the two counties a lot in his time. Quite likely he will, said Nisbet. But just let me take my photograph first. But look here, I rather think Green isn't up today. He wasn't in Hall last night, and I think I heard him say he was going down for the Sunday. That's true, too, said Williams. I know he's gone to Brighton. Well, if you photograph it now, I'll go across to Garwood and get his statement. You keep an eye on it while I'm gone. I'm beginning to think two guineas is not a very exorbitant price for it now. In a short time, he had returned and brought Mr. Garwood with him. Garwood's statement was to the effect that the figure, when he had seen it, was a clear, was clear of the edge of the picture, but had not got far across the lawn. He remembered a white mark on the back of its drapery, but could not have been sure it was a cross. A document to this effect was then drawn up and signed, and Nisbet proceeded to photograph the picture. Now what do you mean to do, he said. Are you going to sit and watch it all day? Well, no, I think not, said Williams. I rather imagine we're meant to see the whole thing. You see, between the time I saw it last night and this morning, there was time for lots of things to happen. But the creature only got into the house. It, would, it could easily have got through its business in the time and gone to its own place again. But the fact of the window being open, I think, must mean that it's in there now. So I feel quite easy about leaving it. And besides, I, ha I have a kind of idea that it wouldn't change much, if at all, in the daytime. We might go out for a walk this afternoon and come in to tea, or whenever it gets dark. I shall leave it out on the table here and support the door. My skip can get in, but no one else. The three agreed that this would be a good plan, and, further, that if they spent the afternoon together, they would be less likely to talk about the business to other people, for any rumor of such a transaction as was going on would bring the whole of the phasmatological society about their ears. We may give them a respite until five o'clock. At or near that hour, the three were entering Williams' staircase. They were at first slightly annoyed to see the door of his rooms was unsupported, but in a moment it was remembered that on Sunday the skips came for orders an hour or so earlier than on weekdays. However, a surprise was awaiting them. First thing they saw was that the picture leaning against a pile of books on the table as it had been left, and the next thing was Williams' skip 
Seated on the chair opposite, gazing at it with undisguised horror. How was this? Mr. Filcher, the name is not my own invention, was a servant of considerable standing and set the standard of etiquette to all his own college and to several neighboring, neighboring ones, and nothing could be more alien to his practice than to be found sitting on his master's chair or appearing to take any particular notice of his master's furniture or pictures. Indeed, he seemed to feel, him, feel this himself. He started violently when the three men came into the room and got up with a marked effort. Then he said, I ask your pardon, sir, for taking such a freedom as to set down. Not at all, Robert, interposed Mr. Williams. I was meaning to ask you some time what you thought of that picture. Well, sir, of course I don't set up my own opinion again yours, but it ain't the picture I should hang where my little daughter could see it, sir. You wouldn't, Robert. Why not? No, sir. Why, the poor child. I recollect once she see a door Bible with pictures not aft what this is, and we had to set up with her three or four nights afterwards, if you believe me. And if she was to catch a sight of this skeleton there, or whatever it is, carrying off that poor baby, she would have been in a taking. You know how it is with children, how nervous they get with a little thing and all. But what I should say, it don't seem a right picture to be laying about, sir. Not where anyone that's liable to be startled could come on it. Should you be wanting anything this evening, sir? Thank you, sir. With these words, the excellent man went to continue the round for, of his masters, and you may be sure the gentleman whom he left lost, whom he left lost no time in gathering round the engraving. There was the house as before, under the waning moon and the drifting clouds. The window that had been open was shut, and the figure was once more on the lawn, but not this time crawling cautiously on hands and knees. Now it was erect and stepping swiftly with long strides towards the front of the picture. The moon was behind it, and the black drapery hung down over its face, so that only hints of that could be seen. And what was visible made the spectators profoundly thankful that they could see no more than a white dome-like forehead and a few straggling hairs. The head was bent down, and the arms were tightly clasped over an object, which could be dimly seen and identified as a child. Whether dead or living, it was not possible to say. Legs of the appearance alone could be plainly discerned, and they were horribly thin. From five to seven, the three companions sat and watched the picture by turns, but it never changed. They agreed at last that it would be safe to leave it and that they would return after Hall and await further developments. When they assembled again at the earliest possible moment, the engraving was there, but the figure was gone and the house was quiet under the moonbeams. There was nothing for it but to spend the evening over gazetteers and guidebooks. Williams was the lucky one at last, and perhaps he deserved it. At 11.30 p.m., he read from Murray's Guide to Essex the following lines. Sixteen and a half miles, Anningley. The church has been an interesting building of Norman date, but was extensively classicized in the last century. It contains the tombs of the family of Francis, whose mansion, Anningley Hall, a solid Queen Anne house, stands immediately beyond the churchyard in a park of about 80 acres. The family is now extinct, the last heir having disappeared mysteriously in infancy in the year 1802. The father, Mr. Arthur Francis, was locally known as a talented amateur engraver in mezzotint. After his son's disappearance, he lived in complete retirement at the hall, 
and was found dead in his studio on the third anniversary of the disaster, having just completed an engraving of the house, impressions of which are of considerable rarity. His house looked like business, and indeed, Mr. Green, on his return at once, identified the house as Anningley Hall. Is there any kind of explanation of the figure, Green? was the question Williams naturally asked. I don't know, I'm sure, Williams. What used to be said in the place when I first knew it, which was before I came up here, was just this. Old Francis was always very much down on these poaching fellows, and whenever he got a chance, he used to get a man whom he suspected of it, turned off the estate, and by degrees he got rid of them all but one. Squires could do a lot of things, then, that they daren't think of now. Well, this man that was left was what you would find pretty often in that country, the last remains of a very old family. I believe they were lords of the manor at one time. I recollect just the same thing in my own parish. What, like the man in Tess of the Dubervilles? Williams put in. Yes, I dare say. It's not a book I could ever read myself. But this fellow could show you a row of tombs in the church there that belonged to his ancestors, and all that went to sour him a bit. But Francis, they said, could never get at him. He always kept just on the right side of the law, until one night the keepers found him at it in a wood right at the end of the estate. I could show you the place now. It marches with some land that used to belong to an uncle of mine. And you can imagine there was a row. And this man Gaudy, that was the name to be sure, Gaudy. I thought I should get it. Gaudy. He was unlucky enough, poor chap, to shoot a keeper. Well, that was what Francis, what Francis wanted. And grand juries, you know what they would have been then. And poor Gaudy was strung up in double quick time. And I've been shown the place he was buried in on the north side of the church. You know the way in that part of the world. Anyone that's been hanged or made away with themselves, they bury them in that side. And the idea was that some friend of Gaudy's, not a relation because he had none, poor devil, he was the last of his line, kind of spes ultima gentis, must have planned to get hold of Francis's boy and put an end to his line, too. I don't know. It's rather out of an out-of-the-way thing for an Essex poacher to think of, but... You know, I should say now it looks more as if old Gaudy had managed the job himself. Whew, I hate to think of it. Have some whiskey, Williams. The facts were communicated by Williams to Denniston, and by him to a mixed company, of which I was one, and the Seducian professor of Ophiology another. I'm sorry to say that the latter, when asked what he thought of it, only remarked, Oh, those Bridgefort people will say anything a sentiment which met with the reception it deserved. I have only to add that the picture is now in the Ashleyan Museum, that it has been treated with a view to discovering whether sympathetic ink had been used in it, but without effect, that Mr. Brittnell knew nothing of it, save that he was sure it was uncommon, and that, though carefully watched, it has never been known to change again. Ooh, man. Well, I definitely shit in my grandma's closet. I don't know about you. 
Yeah, I'm not. I'm not even anywhere near where she is, and I know that they made it all the way there. They made it all the way there. Mm. Man, mm-hmm. well, I'm glad it's over because I was very scared. And, yeah, uh, I don't want to be scared anymore. So, well, Santa's coming to your house, so you might, yeah, you might get scared because he's invading and breaking in. Now know? I'm gonna bulk up on eggnog first so I can fight him. That's right. Let's see him try. You know. That would be a good, you know what, like your uh, Dylan Claus, have some kind of um, holiday movie where like a dad has to has to fend Beefs off Santa Claus Santa from Claus. his family. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and just gets like real roided out and ripped. I'd see that. I don't know who should play him, but we can think about that for next time. Um, I mean, probably me, right? Yeah. Pretty big. Yeah, that's true. There isn't really another choice. Yeah. We'll go belly to belly, just <laughs> smashing our bodies together. You, you're gonna have to gain about 300 pounds to be. Oh, I got a, I got me a bowl full of jelly too. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know what? At this don't right, I guess. But yeah, nah, you gotta give a little bit more to, to face up to Santa, Santa Claus. That's right. Mm-hmm. Oh, hey, I meant to ask you real quick before yeah. we go. Yeah. Um. What's up? What's today, my fine fellow? Uh, in real time or in podcast time? Podcast time. It is the winter solstice. This, oh. <laughs> <laughs> uh, it is Christmas Eve? Maybe? Huh. The spirits have done it all in one night. They can do anything they like. Of course they can. Of course they can. Do you know the poulterers in the next street, but at the corner? Oh, boy. Oh, God. No. I don't. Go give me Do that prize turkey goose? that's hanging up there. <laughs> Not the little one, the big one. Okay, I got it. The one as big as you. God damn it. <laughs> All right, read it. Read a Christmas carol. We'll do this again next year. <laughs> happy holidays, uh, yeah. everyone. Yeah, happy holidays. From our wacky podcast family oh, to yours. <laughs> Don't get beamed up by an alien in the meantime. Or maybe Why do not? if you like it. <laughs> Why I not? Mean, who gives a shit anymore? Couldn't be worse. <laughs> Don't wish it. Because it could. Ah, happy New Year. Holiday cheer. Nothing. <laughs> <laughs>